0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Tamira Mohammed. Body positivity is, if not exactly a movement, then an idea and a politics rooted in an important feminist insight but with reach far beyond. The idea that putting people down because their body doesn't meet a certain ideal resonates with a lot of different kinds of experiences, and not only is it an initial point of political engagement for many young feminists, but it has become a piece of common sense among many otherwise apolitical people, and even a theme in more than a few corporate advertising campaigns. While in some ways this is an encouraging sign of ongoing feminist capacity to nudge the broader culture in positive directions, The problem is that both the more broadly distributed version of body positivity and indeed the most common feminist understandings of it tend to focus on a relatively narrow and privileged range of bodies and issues. White cisgender straight women whose bodies deviate from the dominant ideal but not too much, and solutions organized around individualized notions of self-love and self-care. Tamira Muhammad is a 22-year-old cisgender queer woman of color and a feminist who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Last year, she and a group of friends came to a point of shared frustration with mainstream body positivity politics. They certainly agree that the ways that certain bodies get shamed or marginalized or denigrated or excluded can be a powerful starting point for people to engage politically with their own experiences and with the world but they see so much more to such politics than is conventionally allowed. They see radical, anti-racist, queer and trans intersectional potential, and they're determined to act on that. Their main path to action has been collective educational tools. They began with an intense week-long series of workshops late last year, along with a zine, they got a great response from the Halifax community and decided to become an ongoing collective called Our Resilient Bodies. Since then, Our Resilient Bodies has put on many more events and workshops on a wide range of body-related themes. The events have included topics like decolonizing desirability, fat phobia, mainstream pride celebrations and colonialism, menstruation, a number on various aspects of eating disorders, femphobia in queer communities, Life drawing of marginalized bodies, a queer feminist porn screening, and lots more. They aim to create spaces where people can talk about their experiences, develop critical insights and more radical and nuanced politics, and build supportive community with those who have both similar and different experiences of marginalization. They want to ask, quote, how do racism, colorism, ableism, cissexism, sexism, classism, and heterosexism? inform our understandings of beauty, desirability, and our lived experiences within our own bodies, End quote. One of their major focuses in coming months will be extending their reach and doing outreach and events in various parts of rural Nova Scotia. I speak with Muhammad about our resilient bodies, about their work so far, and about bringing a radical, intersectional, anti-oppressive lens to body positivity. We spoke by Skype to phone from Halifax.
1: My name is Tamir Mohammed. I am a 22 year old queer feminist woman of color who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm currently in school working on my master's, and I also helped found Our Resilient Bodies, which is a collective here in Halifax. A few of us who work to provide an alternative space to the mainstream body positivity movement where we can be a lot more critical of the ways that our experiences are shaped by forms of oppression and the ways that we can build community of knowledge and support in those experiences. I don't know when I first became a feminist, but probably in high school, I started to notice things were a little bit off, and I was often butting heads with school policies and stuff around dress codes. And so it was less like radical feminist issues, but definitely stuff around bodies and the way that women are treated and feminine-presenting people are treated. And then I moved into university and I learned a bit more academic feminist theory, but also began identifying as queer and getting involved in the queer community here in Halifax. And at least the part of the community that I'm a part of is pretty political. And so I got a lot more involved in queer and anti-racist feminist politics through that. And then Our Resilient Bodies is probably the first more grassrootsy activist work that I was involved in that's outside of the university and outside any kind of organization. And it started out as a week-long series in December of 2015. And it came out of frustration that I, myself, and a couple other people were expressing over the way that body positivity is represented online and the kinds of conversations that are had around body positivity and the idea that we should just love ourselves no matter what. And we were talking about how difficult that is given our various identities and the kinds of experiences that we have and the way that our culture simultaneously tells us that we should love ourselves against all odds and then also tells us that we shouldn't love ourselves for a million and a half reasons. And so it started as a week-long series of workshops, was very successful and everyone was really into it. And so we became a collective that runs this stuff regularly. And so that's what I've been doing for pretty much the past year.
0: Maybe before we get into the details of our resilient bodies, you could set the stage for listeners by laying out what mainstream body positivity politics are.
1: Well, often it's focused on a really particular group of people, which is white, cisgender, straight women who may not have the quote unquote ideal body of our culture. They might like have a little bit more fat on their bodies, but definitely nothing outside of the realm of what is still considered desirable. That's kind of what we've noticed is the focus in the body positivity movement that's the group that's focused on and that's the group that is told that they can you know, love themselves no matter what and that ignores a lot of experiences that don't fit that narrative. So for example, being queer, being trans, being a racialized woman, all of those different things would shape your experience in a different way and would oftentimes create a lot more barriers to being told that you're desirable or feeling desirable or feeling loved and those kinds of things. And oftentimes it's focused on just like body confidence so It doesn't take into account the emotional aspects of those things and how trauma and mental health is related. Our approach is to take a lot more of an intersectional approach and look at how these various things work together and how people's experiences are oftentimes more complex than just being like a woman in society or that kind of thing.
0: And what was the trigger or set of conversations that led to that initial week of workshops?
1: I'm sure for most people, activist work comes out of personal experience. And so like myself, I was frustrated by the lack of conversation around how white, the mainstream body positivity movement and the lack of conversation around the different experiences that in particular racialized women would experience. I was particularly interested in this new body hair thing where it's increasingly accepted to have arm hair and leg hair like as feminine people but that other forms of body hair that oftentimes people experience when they come from South Asian backgrounds and stuff like that. So body hair on your chest, if you're a woman or a feminine person, or body hair on like your upper lip and that kind of stuff is not valued in the same way and isn't thought to be political. It's still just thought to be like undesirable. Those kinds of things is what made me feel like I needed something else and that probably a lot of other people also needed something else. And then Reese, who is the one person who I work most closely with and has been involved in our resilient bodies since the get-go. They brought in a lot of conversation around trans identity as well as trauma. They're very interested in trauma and the body. And so some of the earlier workshops, there was one on complicated eating disorders, which was kind of like breaking out of the narrative that an eating disorder is what doctors say it is. And we talked about how disordered eating can manifest in many, many different ways. And that probably most people experience this kind of thing if they've been told that their bodies are undesirable or if they've experienced trauma, it can manifest into disordered eating. And actually, the first original series of workshops had 10 different or more than 10 different facilitators. And so they each facilitated workshops that were based on something related to their experience that they were feeling they needed to share or that they were frustrated by in the body positivity movement. One was called Decolonizing Desirability, and that spoke a little bit to what I was saying related to the body hair, but talking about the way that white standards of beauty have been prioritized and that beauty standards are based on this idea of whiteness and thinness and cisgendered identity and that kind of thing. There was a workshop on menstruation, trying to break down the stigma around menstruation a bit, but also to talk about menstruation, like not in a way that essentializes it or talks about it so that it wasn't cisnormative. We also had the life drawing series, which prioritized bodies that aren't often seen in artwork or aren't often thought to be model worthy. So having a space for people to model and for other people to turn their bodies into artwork. And yeah, there were a few other workshops. That week was very successful and a lot of people came out and a lot of people had some really great things to say. And it was clear that this conversation is needed. And so we started having two to three events monthly. We have another series of sorts coming up that's queer-focused. We're going to be talking about, like, pride and colonialism. And there's one on femme phobia, so talking about the devaluing of femininity and the way that that manifests, especially in the queer community. All of our work is very, it's a little all over the place in the sense that almost everything is related to our bodies and our experiences in our bodies and almost every form of oppression has an effect on our body. And so our workshops, there's a whole range of topics that are covered and a lot of it is based on when people approach us and they say that they want to talk about a particular thing and then we try and make a workshop out of it.
0: What sorts of people have been coming to your events?
1: The neat thing is that we've been super happy to find that we actually do get a wide variety of people who come out. And I think part of the reason is that one of the things we really wanted to do was to make the workshops as accessible as possible. We mean that in terms of physical accessibility with having ramps and non-gendered bathrooms and having other things available, like active listeners and that kind of thing, but also making it accessible in terms of language, because we know that, And I catch myself doing it all the time that a lot of time when we speak about activist work and feminist politics, we can pick up a lot of academic jargon that a lot of people don't understand or people don't have the base knowledge needed to engage in the kind of conversation that you're engaging in. So one of the things that we really try and do at our workshops is make it accessible to people by making sure that all of the language is defined and explained and the conversation is something that can be tailored to whoever's in the audience at that time. So we can start from wherever we need to start from so that everyone's on the same page. And so during that first initial week, we do have a lot of, you know, like queer people coming out because those are the networks that we're engaged in. And a lot of people from ages like 18 to 30. But in some of our recent events, we've actually seen people that I've never seen in any kind of activist community before, at least none that I'm a part of. We had some more elderly people, people who I'm guessing don't identify as queer, but obviously I'm just making that guess on my own. And yeah, one thing that we definitely want to do in the future is to have more of a specific outreach to the Black, Indigenous, and people of color community in Halifax, because we do definitely want to outreach to that group because it's been less of a collaborative effort there.
0: And given the emphasis that you put on various kinds of accessibility, what's it been like trying to find venues for these events?
1: Yeah, it's actually quite difficult, especially in Halifax, because a lot of the buildings are heritage buildings, and so there aren't very many accessible spaces here. There is one coffee shop, it's called Just Coffee Shop, that has all of the kind of access needs available that we need, and we've been super lucky that they often donate their space to us for free, and then a Pal of ours who works there helps us to manage the space and that kind of stuff. So that's just a stroke of luck that we've managed to get that space. But it definitely is hard to come by spaces that are accessible and that aren't university centers, because part of the thing we want to do is move away from academia. And so when you hold events in a university, it tends to have that sterile and academic feel to it. And that's not what we want. People who don't feel comfortable in those spaces to still be able to engage in these conversations. So definitely in trying to move out of those spaces, it's difficult to find spaces that are accessible.
0: So let's maybe dive a little deeper into one or two of the topics that your group has had events on. So maybe talk a little bit more about the connection between our experiences in and with our bodies and things like trauma and mental health.
1: So the most obvious would be something like eating disorders, where we've clearly seen a direct link between what bodies are prioritized and then what the effect has been on people's mental health and their behaviors. But it's also like queer and trans people, people who experience various forms of marginalization tend to have higher rates of mental illness. And I think that's in part because of the kinds of life experiences that they're having and the positions that they're in oftentimes being economically disadvantaged and that kind of thing as well. And so I think it's important to incorporate conversations about mental health into the rest of our conversations about oppression and various forms of oppression, both because mental health is very stigmatized and is part of all of that, but also because the two work together in so many ways. And particularly in relation to bodies. A few of our workshops have focused on how trauma can manifest into particular kinds of bodily experiences. So like one would be disordered eating, but another one that we had recently was about your digestive system. We had a really great workshop where the facilitator, she's like a holistic nutritionist, and she talked a lot about the ways that trauma and stress and that stress response has an effect on the digestive tract. And so you have actual physical responses to experiences that are being processed like in your brain. And so there actually is a physical link between the rest of your body and your brain and your, like, level of happiness and that kind of stuff, as well as that your life experiences can have an effect on your body and the way that it functions as well. So, like, various bodies are not valued and are put down consistently in terms of face-to-face interactions, but also in the media and all of that kind of stuff and historically. And all of that stuff has an effect on how you feel about yourself. And also, I think increasingly, it's being recognized that experiences of oppression like racism and sexism and homophobia can manifest into trauma so that you can experience trauma based on these forms of oppression either because an experience is so severe that it's traumatic or because so many experiences over time compound into the same kind of stress response in the mind. And then all of that also has an effect on your body and the way that it functions. And so it's kind of like a big cycle of the oppression can lead to the trauma, the trauma is related to the oppression, and then it can manifest into bodily stuff and then keeps going around and around.
0: What's involved in creating the space for and facilitating the kinds of difficult conversations that no doubt some of these workshops involve?
1: It's definitely something that we're always learning to do, and it's important that we get feedback from people a lot to find out how well or how poorly we're doing that. As of right now, the kind of staple things that we tend to have are like providing an active listener or somebody who can be there if people need to step out, either just to be by themselves and just to be checked on or to have somebody to have a conversation with, as well as making sure that there are other spaces in that building or in that room for people to hang out in so that they don't have to engage in the conversation. Another thing that Reese always tells people, which I really, really appreciate is that people are totally welcome to fiddle around on their phones or like no one's going to think you're rude because you can't make eye contact when you're talking or because you, you know what I mean? So you're welcome to look at your phone, you're welcome to doodle, you're welcome to sit wherever you need to sit and engage in whatever way feels best for you so that we're not excluding people who don't feel 100% in those kinds of environments. And that's kind of like the problem with a lot of mainstream feminist work is that it's not accessible for people for various reasons. And obviously, we also don't know what all of the accessibility needs are at any given time. So we encourage people prior to the event on Facebook or through email to like get in contact with us and let us know what things they might need us to put in place for the event. But we're totally interested in always adjusting our methods and stuff based on the kind of feedback that we get but it is difficult. It's hard to make assumptions about what's needed, and then by doing that, you prioritize particular needs over others, either because you're unaware that the other needs exist and you need to maybe do your research more or you haven't been approached about it or whatever, or maybe we don't have the resources to make that particular thing available. But yeah, it's definitely always the ongoing learning experience. Most of our events have quite a large discussion component it depends on obviously what the facilitator wants because it's often not us facilitating. We often get folks who have different experiences so that it's not just all based on our perspective. But there's usually a discussion component with some discussion questions that allow people to talk about their personal experiences that they're bringing in. We've been also very lucky so far to not have very many groups of people where anyone's been particularly rude or I don't know bigoted to others. I don't know if that's because of the particular group we draw in or what that's about, but that's been pretty good so far. But definitely being aware of who's in the space and making sure that you make space for people who haven't been able to speak or whose experiences haven't been covered in the conversation up until that point. It's kind of like an ongoing thing. And then the facilitator can also only really speak from their perspective and their experience. So like one of the workshops we're working on right now is on Semphobia, And obviously the three facilitators, which are myself, Reese, and another person, we all have our own experiences with that. But we also, there are many experiences with Semphobia that we have never experienced. So it's really important that we do our research and introduce those conversations, but also allow the folks who are there who have those experiences to speak to that rather than us dominating the conversation. And so it depends, yeah, I guess on the topic, on who's in the space and what the topic is and stuff.
0: And I understand that along with the events that you've done, your work has also included making zines. Tell me about that.
1: In the December week, we've made a zine of all the various topics that we were covering with some information about the topics and descriptions of what the workshops were going to be about and why they were happening. And we're hoping to make another zine for we have like a feminist queer porn screening coming up this month and we want to make a zine talking about what can make particular kinds of porn feminist or like alternative and how we can engage with that aspect of sexuality, while being the least oppressive possible. And so they're more like discussion pieces than any kind of informative one-on-one thing. It's more like conversations. The one that we did in December re themselves, and there was another one that they were working on about digestive experiences like bodies and food-related stuff that had an open call up. That zine hasn't been completed yet, but would open to submissions. And then this one for the porn one, that's a very good question. I hadn't even thought it to that point yet, but we're always interested in other people's perspectives. The whole purpose of our work is that we don't want the conversation to be narrow or to be focused on one particular experience or group or identity. And so we're always interested in other people's experiences and what they want to put in our work and how they want to collaborate.
0: What do you hope that your events and your zines will lead to in terms of their impacts on people and on the community?
1: I think at the bare minimum, we want there to be spaces where people can go and talk about the experiences that they're actually having and not try and morph their experiences into what the dominant conversation is. So like we want people to be able to talk about the things that aren't being talked about on maybe Tumblr or on the mainstream, you know, like in-dove campaigns and that kind of thing. So at the bare minimum, that's the goal. Give people space to talk about their experiences. And then the second goal would be helping ourselves and others to think more critically about the experiences that we're having and see what the intersections are. Because the more that you learn and the more you think about stuff, the more powerful you feel to approach the issues and do something about it. And the hope is also that people who aren't already thinking about these things will have the opportunity to or for myself to learn about experiences that I don't share so that my own approach to bodies and oppression can be a bit more complicated than it would be otherwise. And then one of our goals for the summer is to go out to rural areas of the province later this summer and speak to folks who live rurally but also youth because those are also people who are often excluded from the conversations. Especially Nova Scotia has huge rural populations and a lot of activist work happens in cities And so that's, I guess, our fourth goal is to engage groups that are often left behind in these movements.
0: Tell me more about the work that you're planning to do in rural areas.
1: We're going to hopefully book workshops and events in various rural communities in Nova Scotia and then drive out and do the workshops and provide resources and have conversations. None of us, well, actually, sorry, one of us does come from a rural area, but we don't often share those experiences. And so we don't know even necessarily what the needs are going to be. So it might start with an outreach thing and seeing what is it that folks want to talk about in these communities.
0: So we've talked about the kinds of conversations that have happened within the context of the events that you've been organizing. But what kinds of reactions and conversations have you had, both positive and negative, outside of that context in terms of in-person interactions, online, and so on?
1: So we've collaborated a bit with different groups in Halifax that work on specific issues. We are hoping to collaborate with a youth-focused organization, and we've collaborated with a gender center on Dalhousie campus, and then also with pride, like rad pride movements and stuff here. So one goal is to keep working with other groups so that we can be stronger together as opposed to doing the same thing separately. This is a pretty small city, so we're lucky in that sense that you can be pretty aware of what else is going on in the city and try and work together. Sometimes there are conversations that happen even like on our particular events on Facebook where folks express excitement in the fact that these conversations are happening or they say that they've had a similar experience and they're really interested in having a conversation about it or that they're sad that they can't make it for whatever reason. So I think it's definitely something that people are interested in doing and also because our work changes so much like we haven't really done the same thing twice or anything like that. We're doing our best to respond to what the needs are in the community at any particular time. So like sometimes our events literally emerge out of people approaching us and saying they want to see an event on this particular topic. And then we try and make that happen. And so that's kind of how the conversations happen outside of our particular events. They usually turn into events. I think most of the negative stuff that we've experienced has been people who are like transphobic commenting on stuff on Facebook because our work is very intersectional. You get a lot of people who are interested in one particular part of anti-oppression work, but not another. And so those people don't really fit into what we're doing because, so for example, if somebody is really interested in female empowerment, but is super transphobic, then they're not going to find what they need in our work. And so we've had that kind of experience where we've had to deal with those comments and stuff online, but nothing too severe. So far, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And the kind of critical feedback that we have gotten, like comment boxes at our events is usually very good points about things we should do to improve our work, like particular comments on the space or on having, for example, like when we had a workshop on fat phobia and our active listener didn't identify as fat. And so there was a comment about that, about having an active listener who shares that experience, which is a very valid point. And so we do our best to respond to comments and be genuine in our response and then fix the things that need to be fixed. But yeah, so far... Maybe we're just very lucky we haven't experienced any severe negative feedback.
0: So what do you think it could look like for people who come to your events and read your zines and are really engaged by the work that you're doing to take up the radicalized, intersectional, body-focused politics that are at the center of your work and take them into other kinds of movement and community spaces and act on them there?
1: I think that there's a lot of really good intentioned work happening around mental health, particularly around women and bodies and eating disorders and that kind of stuff that often doesn't have quite as critical an approach and maybe is a little bit more narrowly focused without recognizing the way that it can be related to or intersect with these other forms of oppression. And so what would be really amazing is if these kinds of conversations could move into those spaces and help make change in those spaces. Because oftentimes those organizations tend to get more funding, have the resources to do a lot of work around the issue. It would be super great if we could collaborate or if folks who engage in these conversations with us were moving into working with those groups and stuff and then we're able to make changes there. And also I'm sure we also have a lot to learn from those folks like what the constraints that they have and how we can respond to that in our own work and think up solutions. But I do think that there's always room for collaboration with people who are working in all different areas.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Tamira Mohammed of the Halifax-based collective Our Resilient Bodies. To learn more about their work, go to resilientbodies.com. That's resilientbodies.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.